It's always time for the Bible Geek, and uh, I'm Robert M. Price, actually not slacking off today. I want to remind you again uh, that uh, the fourth Myth Information Conference, um, sponsored by uh, Mythicist Milwaukee, is having, uh, it's going to be on uh, Saturday, September 30th at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee. And uh, you can find out more about it on the Mythicist Milwaukee, all one word, dot com. And um, uh, there'll be the uh, exciting premiere, I'm sure, with red carpet and limousines of the Batman and Jesus movie, in which I play some role, uh, just talking head, no doubt. Yeah, okay, well, let's uh, look at some questions. This is from Brent in Tennessee. It says, on the July 28th show, uh, from minutes 42 through 61, if I understood you correctly, you explained your atheism in so many words as not knowing. I have two strident atheist friends who say the same thing. I contend that, by definition, not knowing is agnosticism and not atheism. I self-define as agnostic because I don't know and I can't know, nor can anyone know if God or gods exist. I doubt if there is a God or gods. The odds are stacked against the existence of God or gods, but I can't know for sure. It seems to me that saying there is no God or gods poses the same problem as saying there is a God or gods. You can't prove it either way. Over the years, I've looked up the definitions of agnosticism and atheism in a variety of dictionaries, and all of them say the same thing. Agnosticism is not knowing if there's a god or gods, and atheism is believing there is no god or gods. Could you elaborate your understanding of the difference between atheism and agnosticism? I'd be glad to... Uh, I think that ultimately there is uh, little to no difference uh, because um, the uh, atheist, I should say, thinks there is no God. Uh, but does he claim to know this? Absolutely. Uh, that I, I don't see how anybody could say that. It seems to me that atheists are saying, basically, that there's just not sufficient reason to take the possibility of God existing seriously. Uh, to use William James's terms, it's not a live option. I mean, it's conceivable there's a God hiding himself someplace, but is there really reason to take it seriously? Like, uh, are there men in the moon? I, I, I suppose it's conceivable, but uh, is there any reason to think so? It's, but it's not like uh, something you know not to be true, since, as you say, you can't know. Uh, if there's a difference, then you'd have to say that atheists believe it as an act of faith, which strikes me as bizarre. Uh, I, I, I mean, there may be people who in fact do that, but I think that atheists describing their position would probably say, yeah, I just don't buy it. Uh, but um, agnosticism, on the other hand, as I understand it, admits that Allah, William James, 
uh, the existence of God is a live option. There could well be a God, but since you can't definitively be sure of it, you have to sort of uh, remain in this twilight zone of uh, saying, I, I, you know, and, and even then, you're probably going to be a practical atheist. You're going to, I mean, you're going to um, behave and and like, which working hypothesis are you going to adopt? There are people that say, yeah, you cannot know, but I believe it anyway, that there is a God. Uh, I'm going to govern my choices and decisions that way. Uh, I know it's, uh, it's impossible to know, but then that's what we mean by faith, right? We place confidence in a certain direction, knowing that uh, we might be wrong. That's the existential risk of faith that uh, Tillich talks about, I think. It's, uh, it's like, like the, uh, like Pascal's wager. And, uh, there's, um, I think, like, for instance, Clark Pennock, the great evangelical theologian who I was privileged to know, he admitted that uh, you, you could make a good case for Christianity, but it still wasn't knowledge, uh, that uh, it was a kind of working hypothesis that seemed to be justified. So he was uh, going to take that step. He, he didn't think it was a huge leap, but he admitted that uh, you couldn't really know it. But faith seemed reasonable, right? It doesn't demand a verdict, like some apologists say, but uh, it was a reasonable step. Uh, and uh, th But uh, so I think that's a kind of pious agnosticism. So he went from agnosticism to saying, well, not to decide is to decide. I'm going to uh, take the, the step of faith. Whereas um, unbelieving uh, agnostics are saying, yeah, it's quite likely, but uh, but not not really uh, more than a a fifty fifty proposition, and that's just too uncertain for me. I I'm not gonna bank on that, uh, and so you choose to live a this worldly or whatever secular uh, life, and. Um, so you're going, William James in his essay, The Will to Believe, said, if it's a live option and a forced option, well, that means you're going to go in one direction or the other, even by default. And so that's... It seems to me that's what agnostics do if there's a difference between agnosticism and atheism and i would say i would uh, say the the dividing line is uh uh do you think it's a live option uh, if if you don't you're still not claiming to know all things right to to know that there's not a god uh, i don't see how any puny human uh, to quote the Hulk, uh, would uh, would be in the position to know, and if they say, "Oh yeah, th there's no God," I I'm absolutely sure. Well, you're you're just uh, like you say, ha exercising a kind of uh, faith that there's no God. You're never going to catch me saying or thinking that. So I I hope that's uh, uh, that helps. I think that does clarify things. Uh, let's see, Justin White says, oh, great geek, 
On the July 19th podcast, you were talking about predestination as an obvious outcome of an abstract God compared to the open future of a personal God. Which God do you think wins out in Christian scripture? If we were to add up the references, would we expect a God who predestines all? Or do the prophets, Jesus, and the epistles tilt the scales in the other way? I've had this discussion with friends over the years, and we usually come to the conclusion predestination wins out, and I believe the Catholic Encyclopedia agrees. There's also a lot of emphasis on predestination in Islam, which would suggest that's the direction that the theological winds have been blowing over the past few thousand years. Your thoughts? Well, it seems to me that you. this is one of those those places in theology and in the Bible where you really have an irreconcilable contradiction. I don't think it's a paradox. It just seems to me it's an unsuccessful harmonization when people say that somehow there is predestination behind the scenes, but we actually have free will. Uh, we, uh, I think C.S. Lewis said that uh, on the... Um, the gate to the kingdom of heaven, uh, it says uh, on on the side you see as you're approaching it, it says, whosoever will may come. After you pass through the gate, you look back at it, and it says, uh, uh, chosen from the foundation of the world. Uh, and uh, it's just a matter of perspective. I kind of like that, but uh, I uh, I think really... In a sense, you find the essence of this in a comment Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield, one of the great fundamentalist apologists back in the 20s, uh, in something he said that uh, uh, predestination is simply the, the, the logic of piety that you don't claim anything for yourself. Instead, you, you, you attribute all to God. I mean, you find that all the way back in Deuteronomy. Don't go thinking if you're affluent and your business has succeeded and you got good crops. Don't go thinking, I, my own hand has gotten me this. No, no, sort of like Obama. You know, you didn't build that. Uh, keep in mind that uh, you never could have succeeded despite your efforts if it weren't for uh, the gracious uh, supervision of God. Uh, and uh, in a way, that's just a kind of a safeguard from becoming puffed up and arrogant. In a way, it's a kind of humility. Uh, and a secular version of it would say, you know, if somebody says, you know, you've really done great. And said, it's just luck. Uh, and uh, they they don't want to pat themselves on the back. And uh, so e even in secular terms, that's sort of the logic of it. Uh, there were, there's, like uh, Schleiermacher said, the feeling of absolute dependence. Uh, I don't control the universe. Uh, all kinds of things, unknown to me as well as known, uh, combine perhaps, as Lovecraft phrase says, uh, in their chance combining, uh, things have uh, worked out well for me, and I, I'm just glad it's so. Uh, I, I'm not trying to lord it over you and say, hey, look how great I am. Well, 
Warfield said in in the in theological terms, that kind of forces you to say predestination. And sure enough, as Luther and Calvin and Augustine said, uh, by taking this consistently uh, to to the end, they said. Um, we cannot congratulate ourselves for our salvation, our repentance. I mean, you can say on the one hand, and all uh, traditional Christians would say, yeah, I, I can't thank myself for my salvation because Jesus Christ died and rose to provide it. I had nothing to do with that. I'm just glad to be the beneficiary. But uh, how did you get to be the beneficiary of it? Well, you repented and believed in the gospel, right? Well, did you even have the wherewithal to do that, or was that, too, a gift of God? Uh, if you believe in original sin and total depravity and all that stuff, uh, could you have, could repentance even have looked like a good idea to you? Uh, and uh, so... Um, Luther, Calvin, and the others said, uh, no. I mean, doesn't uh, Ephesians say you were once dead in sin? Uh, look, uh, <laughs> you know, a dead guy can't do too many things. Uh, walking dead shows to the contrary, though that would be interesting to factor into salvation, I guess. But um, no, you, you can't. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's got to be God who uh, either, well, as Arminians would say, who makes it possible for you to decide the Holy Spirit, the prevenient grace of God flips the light switch momentarily so you can see the options in a more objective way and choose salvation, though you still might not choose it. But uh, predestinarians would say, go further with that, you can't choose apart from the grace of God, but when the grace of God intervenes, you're going to choose repentance and salvation. Um, I think this gets into, uh, this does sort of match the experience of religious humility, uh, as, as um, Warfield said, but here I invoke Bultmann, who says every theological statement is at the same time an anthropological statement. Uh, and uh, Schleiermacher said, we cannot know the depths of God. We only know uh, the the results the the side of of uh, piety that that is subjective and from that we make a kind of Kantian practical reason inference that there is a gracious God uh, and so forth well yeah that we only know our side of it Calvin said even Calvin said something like this that you know we only know so much of God uh, God uh, as God deals with us. Uh, and um, all of this, I, I understand to mean that a doctrine of predestination is a, as an inference from the experience of piety and uh, feeling lucky, feeling chosen, etc., and that it's not really legitimate to go further along that route for two reasons. One, it... Uh, it's like saying that you and I are characters in a novel, and uh, what happens, though it may seem to follow from mundane cause and effect, 
actually is the result of the the whim of the novelist or the playwright or whatever. And um, you and I, being in the narrative world, don't even know there is such a, a being. Well, yeah, now, it, it, predestination might mean that, but if so, we wouldn't know it any more than the character in the novel or the play would. So if this were true, this uh, this can't be a factor. Uh, and, and you see what happens as a result. People like the Puritans saying, uh, God has unconditionally elected, chosen uh, some to be saved how do I know I'm one of them? Uh, and, and they agonized over this. Th this is one of those unintended absurdities that comes from it being a systematic inference. Uh, and uh, th that ought to tell you that as one of my favorite theologians says, you made a wrong point at Albuquerque. You know, something is wrong there. Well, the second problem with it is, if the more you mentioned the abstraction idea, uh, you wouldn't like predestination doesn't depend upon that. You could just say God is the novelist, right? That's uh, a, a, a creative intelligence writing the story. But if you say that, uh, like uh, Aquinas did, that God's essence is his existence. Uh, if if you go along with that classical Platonizing view of theism, then God is outside of time, and uh, it makes no sense to speak of God changing, either changing his mind, um, acting and reacting in history, being uh, pleased, uh, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God cannot, in, in this case, be pleased once he sees some outcome. He cannot see the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah and decide, okay, I I'm nuking these bastards. No, he can't have wrath as a reaction because he can't react. He's not in time. There's no temporal sequence. That's uh, that's pretty tough to do uh, and to, to conceive. So uh, there, I think, is an absolute gulf, theoretically, between uh, God and as being itself and uh, being rather than a supreme being, the 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 uh, toughest god on the block, uh, and uh, the people that really understand that are uh, Hindus, non-dualist Hindus that uh, say Brahman, the ultimate divine reality, is without qualities. Uh, we can characterize it through the haze of the limiting conditions, the upadis that uh, create our world of Maya. We can see that the ultimate Brahman must be none other than Satchitananda, being consciousness bliss. But God doesn't act or pursue trains of thought. Spinoza knew this too. And uh, so that... Um, when it seems that he does, when we say there is a Brahma, the creator, or Ishvara, this is part of an illusion. It's a sort of trick of the light. And in Christian, abstracted Christian theology, Aquinas, Anselm, etc., they, uh, they should say that, but they don't. They don't want to say that our world is an illusion, 
Uh, I think logically that's demanded, but they don't take that consistent step. Uh, so uh, that isn't exactly predestination even. Right, that is saying that uh, if if ultimately there is no temporal sequence, then there's no future for God to have written out. It's all somehow happening now, uh, and uh, and in the eternal now, so that change, including going from an unbeliever to a believer, from being a sinner to repenting, is part of a shadow play. And uh, so I, I think the um, there are, there are various issues behind this, and um, predestination. I, many many people affirm it, but even the ones who do, inconsistently, to my mind, also say there's free will. I went through uh, the um, the uh, whole Quran once, marking down verses that uh, presuppose or teach uh, faith as the basis of salvation and verses that presuppose works as the basis of salvation, a similar contradiction. And they were about evenly divided, and there was no harmonization because you can't really have one. And I think it's the same sort of thing here. In fact, it's another version of the same question, right? If you can achieve salvation by works, uh, then uh, there there is free will. Uh, if you can't, uh, and it, and then then the faith passes over into predestination quickly, uh, and uh, so I, I th- the same thing comes up in uh, Pure Land Buddhism and so forth. So I guess I've beaten that to death long enough. But um, th- so I I slice the pie a bit differently on that one, or should I say I uh, slice the pizza? Uh, differently. Okay, this is uh, not Martin, but Luther, nonetheless, uh, who uh, always sends good questions. Raised in a conservative Lutheran church, it was hammered into me that our faith was just that, faith or belief, as opposed to anything even resembling works. In fact, as a post-confirmation high schooler, I was dragged into adult Bible study and recall witnessing, with all the embarrassment that comes so naturally to teens about their parents, my mom and another participant debating at agonizing length about whether we could even do the work of believing on our own. What I tell you, folks, just dealing with that. Or whether we could only reject belief. As far as I could tell, they were both arguing the latter, that we couldn't even believe on our own, but somehow they were arguing anyway. Ah, yeah, that's pretty funny. However, there always seemed to be some aspect of works in the mix. Maybe he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. Well, wouldn't baptism be an act, a work? Or our other sacrament, communion, which despite the aforementioned verse seems somehow required for salvation. Again, that seems like a work. While not in the doctrine I was taught, many modern Christians seem to adhere to a vague idea that being good results in salvation. Others believe everyone gets salvation. 
I was always, by the way, I, I tend to slur this. I'm not talking about salivation, like spitting, but salvation, right? Sorry. I was always confused as to even my own Lutheran concept of salvation. But beyond that, if belief were truly the sole requirement for salvation, I still don't understand this. Belief in what exactly? In Jesus Christ, right? Fine. But in Jesus Christ as what? That he was real? That he was the Son of God? In what sense? That he died and was raised again? I've never understood how people could be expected to hold the correct belief to result in salvation if there seemed to be no definitive, agreed-upon explanation of what precisely was to be believed in. Even if there were something more definitive, what if a person was incapable of comprehending it? Say, a child, someone mentally challenged, or someone who simply wasn't very smart. How could that person believe in something beyond his comprehension? Presumably there would be exceptions, but if there could be exceptions, why the requirement to begin with? In that I'm an atheist now, the point is moot, except that I still find the ideas very interesting. Can you speak a little about the topic? Oh, I can speak a lot about it, sadly. Um, yeah, the, the, to me, the big issue here is if you say you've got to believe that A, B, and C are true to be truly saved... You're talking about works, and this is no inside of mine. Bultmann and Tillich make a very good case for this. It's a, uh, or I think uh, John A.T. Robinson quotes um, uh, Alice in Wonderland, where somebody says they, they uh, have these mental calisthenics of believing six impossible things every day before breakfast. Uh, if you've got to, uh, Check these off in your mind. Isn't this cognitive works? I mean, isn't this an achievement for which you can pat yourself on the back? Uh, now, again, this gets back into predestination. If whatever it is, uh, God inspires it, well, okay, but still, what is it? And, and this is the way I like to illustrate this. Suppose you um, you hear the preaching Oh, I, I'm saved by grace, not by works. I just have to believe in Christ, you know, whatever that means. And uh, you, say, you, you say, you know, I think I'm ready to convert and become a Christian. But I must say, I, I don't really buy this Trinity stuff, and I, I don't think I believe in the infallibility of the Bible. <laughs> you hit the bricks, buddy. You know, you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in these things. Now, you would think what their, what their theology amounts to then is saying, okay, belief in Christ is the necessary precondition, but it's not sufficient. Now, that would be reasonable, but of course, that would be admitting that uh, there's more to it, that it isn't simple faith. Uh, and the minute you, as you say, uh, Luther, the the issue uh, is... Um, is uh, not clear as to what the 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 uh, faith is, and the minute you define it, you are making a list of beliefs you have to swallow. Um, like when I first got to, to be born again as an adolescent, 
I had never heard of things like uh, the 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 rapture and the antichrist and the, uh, the church. Uh, the deeper I got into it, uh, talked a lot about that, and I thought, "What is this? The antichrist? Uh, what the heck?" Um, well, it, it, the same thing would be true about the Trinity, I think. And as you say, if you can't understand it, can you really say you believe in it? I don't think so. Right? I like to use the uh, the the illustration of of uh, watching the Oscars, right? Uh, as if some I don't know why anybody would do that, but uh, you know you're staying up late to get through all of the Oscar for the best. Uh, key grip and uh, the best gaffer and then you're waiting hours until finally they have the uh the uh oscar for the best picture and this is what you've been waiting for and so they hand it to the host and he says uh, may i have the envelope please and he opens it up and says huh what do you know okay folks good night um, is it enough to know that there's something in that envelope and not know what it is? I mean, oh, I don't know what the heck the Trinity means, but I believe in it anyway. No, you don't. What's the it? What are you talking about? Or as my friend always said, uh, you know, what's, uh, excuse me, Reverend, what's the uh, meaning of the Trinity? I'll tell you what it means. Sit down and shut up. Uh, it, it's a way of keeping people confused. Why don't you leave the theology to us? This is just the kind of thing Martin Luther ridiculed a second-hand faith. What, you, you mean you don't understand it? You, you're leaving it to, to the guys who do understand it? Uh, and and uh, you're saying, yeah, whatever it is, whatever they uh, believe, uh, yeah, that's okay. Uh, it's it's like Winston Zeddemore in Ghostbusters uh, when he's being interviewed to become the fourth Ghostbuster. And uh, Janine, the secretary, says, do you believe in UFOs, pyramid powers, reincarnation, the lost continent of Atlantis? And he, Zeddemore says, lady, I'll believe in whatever you say as long as there's a steady paycheck in it. Yeah, that's the idea. Well, this isn't faith and grace unless you go with universal salvation. And even then, you don't need faith. You know, either predestination or universalism, you're saved despite yourself. The, the war is over, a la 2 Corinthians. We have been reconciled with God through Christ. And so it's up to us apostles to go bring the glad tidings. Hey, the war is over. Well, presumably it's over, even if you don't care about it or don't believe in it. It's not going to be held against you. Uh, I'm not sure if short of universalism or absolute predestinarianism, it even makes sense. One other thing about this, you may know that, um, I don't know if this is still going on, but 10 or 20 years ago, there was this eruption in uh, the ranks of evangelical Christianity I think centered at Dallas Seminary of all places, uh, kind of the fundamentalist Vatican, a uh, big dispute over whether you have to believe in, G let's say you have to accept um, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or only as your Lord, uh, sorry, only as your Savior. Because some said, if it's Lord and Savior, aren't you introducing works into the picture? Uh, 
You're saying you have to sign on to obey Jesus' teachings. Uh, and, and if that's the case, you're still saying, I've got some work to do. This is the synergism, the working togetherism that uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, frankly, espouses. But this Protestant idea, saved by grace, uh, not by works, that's, uh, that becomes very problematic. Now, of course, the folks that said, oh, no, you got to accept him as Lord and Savior are saying, like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you don't want just cheap grace, uh, just a, an insurance policy. Now, that's, uh, you know, w- why is that not just uh, pew potato, superficial Christianity? I don't know if they ever resolved it or what. I haven't uh, heard anything about it for a long time. But that was the turning point for a friend of mine who had gone through every uh, known permutation of evangelical Christianity, Calvinist versus Arminian, um, uh, predest- yeah, um, charismatic versus dispensationalist, etc., etc. And once he started hearing this debate, that even fundamentalists could not agree on what the gospel is. He said, okay, that's it. I'm done with this. And I think he had a real point, and it's bringing up your question. Belief in what exactly? Well, ultimately, it functions as just sort of a shibboleth to to uh, get into the evangelical community, uh, and uh, but that's not really theology, so you you can't uh, say that. Martin Luther had, uh, as as many New Testament scholars now think, had misconstrued the the discussion in Romans about uh, people being saved by faith, not by works of the law. If you look at the Pauline epistles, whoever actually wrote them, uh, that kind of Christianity was dealing with the problem of whether Gentiles, non-Jews, who converted to Christianity, had to embrace the whole darn Torah. Did they have to become Jewish proselytes to have any right to believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus? Uh, If they did, uh, Pauline literature says, you're building up, you're setting up a, a superfluous stumbling block, an extra hurdle. The issue is whether you're willing to repent and believe uh, and in Christ and be baptized. Uh, and, and of course, you've got to do good works, right? Those, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, I think, has this long list of uh, sins that are going to bar you from the kingdom of God and uh, and so on. Um, but the issue is, do I have to keep the works of the Torah? Do I have to be circumcised and keep the kosher laws and observe all the holy days and so on? And uh, Paul, whether a figurehead or the actual writer, says there's no reason for that. All of those things were were distinguishing marks of Jewish identity, and they're quite legitimate as such. But if you're not a Jew, why require these people to embrace what are really alien cultural mores? Uh, Why why, um, 
make it harder for them. Uh, it's because what is it that saves? Isn't it the Savior, Jesus Christ? If you're not a Jew, you don't have to pretend you are to be a Christian. And so th- th- when it says faith versus the works of the law, uh, that's the issue, not whether good deeds, uh, a moral life is, is uh, required. Uh, of course it is. Uh, in in the same epistles, right? So uh, I think that is uh, perhaps how Protestant theology got into this uh, tangle of uh, maddening conundrums. At least that's the way uh, I view it. I'm sure if anybody is a conservative Protestant listening to this, and of course I welcome them, they're probably uh, boiling now, and I regret that. But uh, this is a new, uh, another way of looking at it that I think tends to um, settle the problems, not by solving them, but by showing that they're false problems, um, snags that should have told us we're on the wrong track. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, This is uh, from whom... Uh, let me go down here. Oh, Lachlan Christiante. Yes. Uh, it says on the Bible Geek podcast, you've answered questions on not only the 93 canonical books of the Bible and its apocrypha, but also the Book of Mormon, the Quran. And while I don't remember them coming up, I know you're familiar with the hymns of the Rig Veda. Uh, so while this is possibly well outside your scope of support, the part of the Satanic Bible I find the most, materi- uh, most mysterious is the Ninth Enochian Key. Since it's not too long, I hope you could read it in your best Billy Graham voice. A mighty god of fire, guard of fire with two-edged swords flaming, which contain the vials of delusion, whose wings are of wormwood and of the marrow of salt, have set their feet in the West and are measured with their ministers. These gather up the moss of the earth as the rich man doth his treasure. Hallelujah. Uh, cursed are they whose iniquities they are. In their eyes are millstones greater than the earth, and from their mouths run seas of blood. Their brains are covered with diamonds, and upon their heads are marble stones. Happy is he on whom they frown not. For why? The Lord of righteousness rejoiceth in them. Come away and leave your vials, for the time is such as requireth comfort. The introductory text to the key says it's a warning against substance abuse, and I know Satanists who do use it as a recitation to ward off addictive cravings. With that interpretation, most of the imagery is obvious. I'm most fascinated by marrow of salt. It's the one thing Google doesn't know about. I assume uh, millstones in one's eyes is a common Elizabethan idiom, since since it's in Richard III, as well as in the original John D. Key. Marrow of salt is also in the original key, rather than being an interpret... 
an interpolation of Anton LaVey's. In practice, marrow of salt is a substitution for whatever it is that a part of you might want, but that your smarter and saner self knows is ultimately destructive, be it heroin or hero sandwiches. But in John D.'s original, do you have any ideas? I'm thinking perhaps there is something biblical I may have missed. For example, the 19th key includes the phrase, for why it repenteth me that I've made man, although it has nothing to do with flooding and doesn't even so much as mention water. Who oh boy. Um, I uh, don't know. I, I've never heard that phrase, though it reminds me of, in Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, where we have a, a quote, whether fabricated or genuine, I don't know, from uh, Borellus, who, who uh, was some sort of an actual alchemist, about the essential salts. And um, I, I'm guessing it has something to do with that, but I, I don't know in the context what it would uh, what it would mean. So I, I got to draw a blank on that. But I, I think it is pretty interesting that the Satanic Bible, which, by the way, is a compilation of stuff unacknowledged, some of it, uh, with. Uh, some of it was taken from this satanic manifesto thing by a guy named Ragnar Redbeard and so forth. Uh, it, uh, it, since it's uh, put out by LeVay's Church of Satan, it comports with their um, attitude that, you know, they're not just a bunch of depraved uh, libertines that they uh, recognize, com I mean, they're not even theists, right? They they don't believe that there is a devil or a god. It's just sort of theatrical religious humanism with a little parapsychology thrown in. I know it sounds like I'm demeaning it by saying that. I don't mean to. I'm just saying this is what I understand the recipe to be. And uh, they, uh, to, to quote the... Uh, one of the uh, Wittenberg Doors theologians of the year, Mr. T. I pitied a fool who's, who's on drugs as you're just enslaving yourself. And uh, so they, they believe in a kind of moderate self-control and, um, and, and so forth. So that does fit, but I, I have to admit I am not familiar with that idiom. And... Uh, I resonate more with the uh, nine angles, with the hounds of Tindalos and nifty stuff like that. So, uh, sorry about that, Lachlan. I welcome, as always, uh, input from listeners who uh, perhaps are familiar with this. Hmm. Let's see. Here's a question from Augustus Van Dusen. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4 in the RSV states, uh, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. What happened to the different levels of heaven in Christian thought? As a former Catholic, I only recall hearing about the existence of a single heavenly realm. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, but my guess is that it's th this idea of the multiple heavens was part of ancient cosmology. 
uh, and uh, like uh, the the like there in in different ancient Jewish documents, we hear two different views. There's the idea that there are three heavens, and uh, like um, the heavens beneath the firmament where birds fly, uh, and then the the heaven of the stars, and then above that the heaven where the throne of Jehovah is located. But um, there's also the seven heavens business, and uh, the the hebdomad, as it's uh, called uh, in uh, uh, Gnosticism and Hermeticism, which just means, you know, the seventh place. Uh, and uh, then some added the the Agdoad, the eighth heaven, and the ninth even. Well, this was part of ancient astronomy. They believed that uh, the Earth was at the center of the whole uh, system, right? I mean, without modern telescopes, what else could you think, right? And um, so they believed that the planets were like... Um, gemstones set into crystal spheres, which were one inside the other concentrically, and that uh, these spheres would move and take the planets with them. And that, so they figured, well, you know, the, the, and this isn't just in the Bible, right? And they believed that each each planet had its own ruling spirit or god the the planetary gods of the babylon of uh, of mithraism the the archons of gnosticism that tried to prevent the ascent of the soul through the spheres up into the divine pleroma above them uh, and uh, there were uh, this is a common belief in in the ancient near east anyway and uh, though I think you find it in the Rig Veda, for instance, in this beautiful hymn to Soma, uh, where it says, "Where the the uh, in the third heaven, uh, in the heaven of heavens." Uh, so they they apparently had the same idea, and uh, so I think once that declined, uh, it seemed uh, pointless to. Uh, differentiate and distinguish between these heavens and especially once the the doctrine of salvation um stressing that you die and go to heaven uh all of this if they weren't gnostic and didn't believe there were pa- there were passwords to give the ruling spirits of each heaven well what the hell with it who who needs it you just you know god's in his heaven we're down here and uh, they still meant it geographically right they still thought god was up there but uh, it the the other somewhere along the line and i don't pretend to know where the the uh, multiple heavens uh, business just sort of fell into uh into uh, obsolescence along with the notion of that angelology the um i guess the seven choirs of angels uh is a remnant of it but that's kind of a museum relic today uh and uh, but the the our idea of angels in contemporary christianity is is a pale shadow of the much deeper and more complex notion of what angels were in, in ancient thought uh, but uh, including the the evil angels, the angels in the New Testament are usually um, antagonists of the human race. But that's again, it was just yielded to Gnosticism.
Okay, um, okay, not Martin, but Luther again, says, I was watching uh, on YouTube a 2013 discussion with Reza Aslan on a Harvard Divinity School program titled Inside the Scholar's Studio. Uh, Aslan answered an audience member's question regarding the conflict between history uh, or literal reality on the one hand, and religious faith on the other, or as he says, the non-conflict by saying, uh, I am not a Muslim because I think Islam is right or that Islam is true, whereas other religions are not. All religions are merely languages. I'm always baffled by people who say, I believe in the Bible or I believe in the Quran. I don't understand what you're talking about. You believe it exists? So do I. These are not things to believe in. They are, to use a Sufi phrase, signposts to God. They're not in the end I'm sorry, they're not the end in and of themselves. They are a means to the end. If your faith is in a text, you're doing it wrong. Uh, end quote. Maybe it's my conservative Lutheran upbringing still fogging up my now atheist brain, sola scriptura and all that, but Aslan makes no sense to me whatsoever. Perhaps the scriptures aren't the end in and of themselves in these religions. Obviously, that would be God. But absent divine revelation, they're the only window into those religions' conceptions of God, aren't they? Well, there's tradition, but that is an interpretation of and an elaboration of Scripture. And they have actual teachings, teachings about history, about conduct or ritual, about salvation. If one is a Christian or a Muslim but doesn't believe those books and their teachings are right or true and others are not, then how or why would one be a Christian or a Muslim? I understand that someone could be culturally religious or enjoy or find beautiful the rituals or ceremonies, but I wouldn't equate that with actually being of those faiths, but rather appreciating those faiths. And I understand that the idea of inclusiveness is more attractive to our modern minds than exclusiveness, but that isn't what those religions historically teach regarding capital T, truth. It seems to me that Aslan is just speaking what my parents would call a watered-down, love-everybody-there-is-no-right-or-wrong kind of inclusive religion, which is separate from the reality of historical Christianity or Islam. Am I missing something? Well, I can give this approach some credit, but there are big problems with it. Let me just see, let me say the way in which I think it it might work. He's demythologizing it. And uh, if you say that these religions involve the temporary willing suspension of disbelief and that the whole thing is sort of edifying theater, I can see that and I can affirm that. That makes sense to me. But if you understand you're, you're getting into it like you are a movie, though hopefully on a more profound level, uh, all right, yeah, I see that. Perhaps you could go even farther and... Um, 
here I think of the the uh, parable of the blind men and the elephant, right? I've mentioned this many times. You've heard of it otherwise too, I'm sure. Uh, these six uh, the, in India, the great, great, I think originally Buddhist parable. Uh, these six guys blind from birth uh, have heard of the mighty elephant and they're curious, what, what is this? Uh, I've never seen one or anything else. And so they uh, take this trip to a, I don't know, a zoo or a stable or something, and they uh, are allowed to go in and touch the elephant to get an idea what it must be like. And so they uh, circle the elephant, and each one uh, touches it. And one guy says, he's grabbing the tusk, and he says, what do you know? The elephant is like a spear. And the next guy's uh, touching the ear, and he says, crazy, the elephant is like a fan. Uh, Somebody touches the broad side of the elephant and says, no, no, the elephant is like a wall. The next guy uh, grabs the uh, one of the legs and says, no, the elephant is like a tree trunk. Uh, the next guy grabs the uh, the tail and says, you're all crazy. The, the, the elephant's like a snake. Uh, well, they leave and they're arguing. Uh, how can you be so wrong? Uh, and, and so on and so on. Well, of course, they're all right in a sense, but they're all wrong because they don't see that the reality is much bigger than what any one of them has experienced. And they're wrong in thinking they've got the whole thing uh, in hand, right? And that's the way it is with religions. If there is any sort of a God worthy of the name, surely he or she or it, was probably the better word, is beyond the grasp of of mere human beings and our perceptions, our conceptions. How do we know then that the the, uh, apparently very different, even contradictory beliefs of another religion uh, are wrong if we're right? Or that ours are wrong if they are right. Maybe there's just too much to it. And as as uh, H. Richard Niebuhr says in a great little book everybody should read called The Meaning of Revelation. I guess you know Niebuhr is N-I-E-B-U-H-R. Uh, the meaning of revelation. He says he, he takes a, uh, a position of what's called perspectival relativism. He says uh, just because you can't know the absolute absolutely doesn't mean you can't know it relatively. Uh, what you perceive may well be true as far as it goes. It just can't go very far. And the same thing with a guy in the other religion. It may be true as far as it goes. Who knows how they connect? You can be even more agnostic and take it the way Paul Feyerabend does in his fascinating books Against Method and uh, what the heck's the other one? Uh, Against... What the... Oh, man. I'm blanking out, but it doesn't matter. He says the only axiom that does not inhibit research is anything goes. Uh, if the the theory you're exploring, you're pursuing, doesn't fit the dominant paradigm, don't uh, squash it. 
keep going and see. Uh, maybe ultimately you'll see that it does connect up. Maybe not. But you, you can't allow this, uh, this uh, carefully worked out framework to squash new developments. Uh, if we'd have done that, uh, you know, we'd never have uh, heliocentricity. Uh, we'd we'd never know most of the stuff we know in science. And uh, so, just keep going. Who knows whether it connects up uh, eventually? And and what does it matter? You'll you'll find out someday, maybe. But uh, that's the time to cross that bridge, not now. So this is a kind of agnosticism, right? And um, I would now th this is what Christians already do with the Trinity, right? So the the idea shouldn't be that odd, even in terms of traditional theology. I mean, this may sound like some sort of Boltmannian demythologizing, and that is one way to approach this, and it sounds to me like Aslan is doing that. But you could go with the Trinity model and say, yeah, I, I don't understand how they could all be true. I mean, is Jesus the Son of God, as Christians say, or is he not, accord, as, as uh, Muslims say? Uh, and uh, I don't know. Uh, let's just, uh, I'm just affirming what I affirm. That doesn't mean I have to negate what you affirm. Uh, and you could say, as he says about language, the notion that Krishna is God incarnate just isn't, it does not impinge on the idea that Jesus is God incarnate. That's not part of my frame of reference. I don't have any beliefs about that at all. It does not figure into my system. Uh, and so uh, that may be the way to go with it. Pious agnosticism. Um, let's see. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's conceivable. But you you can only, I think your options are to demythologize it and say these things are symbols, not literally true, and that would allow for a transformative experience of each religion, but would not allow you to shape the reality of the world according to it. Like, uh, jihadis would have no right to do this. And Sufis would understand that, right? Sufi Muslims do understand it kind of the way that, uh, uh, that Aslan puts it. Uh, so you could do that, or your other choice is to say, I don't know, they may all be true on their own terms. I just can't see the top of the mountain where we can see them coming together. Possibly, you know, I don't know. But in the meantime, why not shoot for what the bumper sticker says and coexist? Right? I, I, I don't understand the, I, I'm very politically conservative, as you know, uh, but even I do not understand the rage those bumper stickers um, uh, kindle in, in conservatives. Uh, it isn't relativism. You, you're saying you want to have peaceful coexistence among the religions. Boy, I, I don't get what the problem is there. Uh, I, uh, I think of uh, Lessing's great parable in uh, Natan der Weise, or Nathan the Wise, a, uh, um, a play based on an old similar story. This 
This king has a gold ring that um, will uh, make the possessor beloved by God and man. Uh, and uh, the king traditionally passes it on on his deathbed to his favorite son. Well, this king, who's uh, going to be dying soon, has three sons, Mike, Robbie, and Chip, uh, whom he loves equally. So what's he going to do? Well, they don't know either. And so they, he's now he's had it. He's on his deathbed. All three of them come in. They're waiting to see who gets the ring. And um, what do you know? There are three rings. Uh, two are uh, presumably copies of the third, which is the real one. And uh, so what uh, the uh, the king dies without saying. And so the uh, his attendant says to the three sons, look, um, we're not even sure if any of these is the original. Maybe he melted it down and all three have some of the original gold. Uh, maybe it was lost. Uh, maybe one is the genuine article and the others are not. So what are you going to do? Well, I say, let each one of you behave as if you had the ring. Uh, compete with one another in doing good deeds, which will bring the approval and the love of mankind and God. Uh, and, uh, you know, may the better man win. What does it matter? Do you really need to know? Make all three of them magic rings. Uh, that ain't bad, right? That's what I understand as uh, as the the meaning of the bumper sticker. Uh, so, I mean, uh, can you coexist with bloodthirsty child crucifying jihadis? No, that, that's a whole different thing. Uh, you got to crush those people. That's clear, right? But th that's a, a kind of a weird exception, right? Uh, how about the thuggy of India? Now nah, the British had to get rid of them. Come on. Uh, they ain't a coexistent, right? You can't coexist with Hitler, right? There are limits to this. But, uh, you know, in, as it says in Colossians somewhere, as insofar as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. That's what I think. Don't get me started on Aslan's book about Jesus. Uh, less said about that, the better. Oh, let's see. I guess that's probably good enough for today. And uh, who knows? Maybe it'll be yet another Bible geek tomorrow. We'll have to wait and see. I'm off to do some Patreon uh, responding and, and so forth. Um so, uh, by the way, I've, I'm reading a couple of books now that I'd recommend to you uh, if you're interested in the weird arcana that I am. Reading um, uh, Himmelfarb's book, um, the, oh boy, what is it? Uh, Jew, uh, Jewish Messiahs in a Christian Empire, which is about a, a, like a 7th century apocalypse called uh, The Book of Zerub Zerubbabel. Yeah, I know Zerubbabel sounds like a character from the Flintstones, but but in fact not, right? Um, and uh, it, it has to do with uh, where this apocalypse came from. It gives the fullest account of the, uh, the, the story of the two messiahs, the messiah son of David and the messiah son of Joseph. It's very interesting. Then there's another one, I can't think of the last uh, the last name of the author, um, but this one is called "The Mixed Multitude," 
and it is about the Frankist movement uh, in the 18th century. Jacob Frank, this wild and crazy um, sort of successor to Sabbatai Savi, both are really interesting. I just can't get enough of Jewish sectarianism and apocalypticism, and if you like that stuff, you might uh, check those books out. Okay, I'll be seeing you soon on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek.